20 years ago, uh, a business management guru wrote a leadership book that's been described as one of the best leadership books of all time. Reviewers describe the book as a handbook for modern executives and managers and organizations. The book revolves around a realistic fable in the vein of other leadership books written at the time, like Who Moved My Cheese, in which the CEO must unite a deeply divided team. And in seeking to overcome the divisiveness of the team, the CEO discovers five overlooked principles that led to the divisiveness on the team. The author of the book, Patrick Lencioni, turned those five principles into a best-selling book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Lencioni draws a pyramid to chart these five distinctions. Think of something like our food pyramid in your mind for a moment. Lencioni puts the least important dysfunction at the top of the pyramid, occupying the smallest space, and he draws the most significant dysfunction along the base of the pyramid, occupying the most amount of space. So what is this most important issue that sits at the foundation of the pyramid, which, if not fixed, will cause all the other layers of the pyramid to keep collapsing? What is this one issue at the bottom? According to Lencioni, the most harmful dysfunction in a team or a company is the absence of trust. Without trust, any relationship is doomed. Well, friends, that's not only true in the corporate world. It's most importantly true in our relationship with God. The status of our business is not what's finally at stake this morning, but the state of our souls. What will it profit a man, Jesus says, if he gains the whole world, but he loses his own soul? And whether or not we lose our soul depends entirely on what or who you trust. All of us, religious or not, trust something. Every one of us in here trusts in something on a regular basis. So where is your ultimate trust this morning? Is it your ability to work hard? Is your trust in your personality? Is your trust in your morality? Or in your lack of morality? We all trust something, and whatever we trust in is what we will become like. And until that matter of trust is resolved, everything in our life will keep collapsing. This morning I want us to look at one of the longest books in the Bible, dealing with one of the most important matters in the Bible, Who Are You Trusting? Would you please locate the book of Isaiah? It's located right in the middle, roughly in the middle of the Christian Bible, in part one of the Christian Old Testament. Now with Thanksgiving and Advent coming upon us, we're not going to start a new expositional series. Instead, what I'd like to do is focus on some message overviews. In the past, we've taken time to preach one message overviews of books in the Bible. We only have a few books remaining, Isaiah, the smallest ones, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. This morning, we're going to focus on the message of Isaiah. And at about midnight last night, I decided that I'm not going to finish the book of Isaiah this morning. So we'll have part two next week. I'm bummed about that, but I thought even the extra hour this morning wouldn't help me get through Isaiah. It was a joke a little bit. Okay, okay. Okay, so the book of Isaiah is what we're looking at. It spans 66 chapters and it occupies about 60 years of Isaiah's ministry. It encompasses the reign of four kings in Judah, 
three world superpowers who weren't superpowers at the time Isaiah wrote and captures the judgment of the nations, the remaking of every heart and leaf and blade in creation until the wolf lies down to play with the lamb and the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Sixty-six chapters. No wonder then that the most common way God reveals himself in Isaiah's book is the Lord of hosts. Fifty times in 66 chapters, God reveals himself over these chapters as the Lord of hosts. Or maybe in the translation you have, it says Lord of armies or Lord Almighty. He stands sovereign over the nations and armies of heaven and earth. And he's the one constant reality in the world. And as we sung, as empires rise and fall, as kings come and go, he says, I am God, the Lord of hosts. There is no other beside me. In fact, he is utterly unique. I know you're not supposed to qualify utterly unique, so pardon the rhetorical flourish, but God is unique in this way. He can declare the end from the beginning before it begins. From ancient times, I declare things to come to pass that haven't even come to pass yet, saying, my counsel will stand, I will accomplish my purpose, I've spoken, I'll bring it to pass, I've purposed it, I will do it, Before it's even happened. The God who summons all to trust in him and his infallible word in Isaiah is the only God there is. Isaiah 45. It was in the beginning of our our worship order this morning. The Lord of hosts calls out to the nations of the earth and says, look unto me, all you ends of the earth and be saved. For I am God and there is none other, Isaiah 45, 22. It was that very verse that arrested the heart of a 50-year-old boy, 15-year-old boy, who'd taken shelter from a January snowstorm in a church building. As a 15-year-old boy, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who grew up to be that godly pastor in London, heard an unknown man, unknown to this day, preach in Spurgeon's words a poor sermon, but a poor sermon from a great text. And with that call of God to look unto him and be saved, Spurgeon, as a 15-year-old boy, turned and believed. That, in a nutshell, is the message of Isaiah, the God who saves. Isaiah's name means Yahweh saves. His name is the purpose to which God made him write this book. I want everybody to know I save and nobody else, and you need to be saved, and nobody else can save you. I am God and there is none other. Isaiah, your name, your name means Yahweh saves and everything you write needs to point people to that one grain reality. Only I can save. That's the message of Isaiah. Isaiah, even though we're only doing part one, is simply this. Will you trust God? There is no other salvation in any other. There's only one name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. It's the name Christ Jesus, the suffering servant, the King Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. At one level, that's the simple, clear message of Isaiah. And yet as simple as this message is at one level, no single commentary, let alone one sermon or two sermons, can mine the riches of Isaiah's sweeping visions of judgments. Capture God's ferocious love. 
sketch out the contours of a suffering servant and describe the glistening reality of a new heavens and new earth. Taking Isaiah in in an hour is like trying to take the Grand Canyon in an hour or climb Mount Everest. You have an hour to do it. Or trying to eat your fill of bottomless chips and salsa at a restaurant because there's always more goodness to come and it never stops coming. That's the book of Isaiah. Pastor Drew Hunter recently spoke at our men's retreat and then preached Sunday morning. He wrote a little 12-week study on the book of Isaiah. Commenting on the panoramic beauty of Isaiah, Hunter observes this. Isaiah is uniquely situated to help you get your bearing on the entire Bible. The deeper you go with Isaiah, the deeper you find you've gone with the rest of Scripture. It stands as a towering mountain on the biblical landscape. And as you climb, you gain a vantage point from which to look backward and forward across the sweep of Scripture. Isaiah forms a bridge between the biblical past and future. He can look backward and describe the first exodus and then tell you about a new exodus that's coming. He can look backward to the first creation and then take your breath away as he looks forward and describes the new creation. He can look backward to the first Jerusalem and forward to the new Jerusalem. He can look backward to the first Davidic king and then forward to a new Davidic king. And several hundred years later, Jesus Christ arrived and brought Isaiah's promises to fulfillment. That's what's happening in Isaiah. That's a breathtaking, redemptive scope. You know, the Christian uh, New Testament opens with what we know as four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The word gospel just means good news. And those four gospels give us the good news about Jesus, particularly his substitutionary life and death and his sin conquering resurrection. Well, people often refer to Isaiah as the fifth gospel, because in this book, 700 years before it happened, Isaiah gives you an eyewitness detail of a suffering servant who's crucified in the place of sinful people like you. 700 years before it happened, he gives you a detailed eyewitness account and theological interpretation of what's to happen. I told you I declare things from the beginning before they even happen. I am the Lord. I'm sovereign in salvation. And thus, to a people who rightly deserved judgment comes the good news of the gospel. God will send a suffering servant king to bring peace to all who trust in him. So if you put this together, Isaiah is about the God who saves his people from judgment through his suffering servant king, and he makes all things new. This is Yahweh who saves his people from judgment through his suffering servant king, and he will make all things new. Well, with that in mind, let's roll up our sleeves and give an overview of this book and then dig into part one. Let's listen to this true tale of a suffering king who's come to save people from the judgment they deserve. Now, one way to find the structure of any passage or book that we've learned repeatedly is notice how it opens or closes. So would you put one hand in Isaiah one and put one hand in Isaiah 66? I beat you there. I have a bookmark in Isaiah 66. We're going to look at the last verse. We're going to look at the second verse of how it opens. So Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 66 put a bookmark or hand in either of those. We're going to start by looking at Isaiah chapter 1. After a brief personal introduction and a statement of the kings that he served, 
Isaiah now unloads on Judah, the southern kingdom. And this is how he begins. Isaiah 1, verses 1 and 2. This is what Holy Scripture says. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem and the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, four kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Isaiah opens with a great problem. What is it? There it is at the end of verse 2. They have rebelled against me. And the me is not simply an impersonal ruler, some distant king, some owner of a company that you never ever meet. Isaiah is describing God as the father and the people of Jerusalem as his children. Thus God says in verse 2, I brought up the people of Judah as my own children, but they have rebelled against me. You know what that means? I put it this way. It means that when any one of us sins, you're not simply breaking a law, but you're breaking the heart of a father who loves you. Anytime you're sin, you're not breaking a law only. You're breaking the heart of your father. And if the weight of that is lost on you because unfortunately you've had a bad father, then just think of this. God is the father that you've always longed for, the one you always wish that you had. And when you sin, you're not breaking a law simply. You're breaking the heart of the most loving father you could ever imagine. The horror of the sin is the heartbreak of the divine father. Isaiah opens with this indictment. My children have rebelled against me. Now, please go to Isaiah 66. That's how the book begins. But I want you to see how the book ends in Isaiah 66. Look at the final verse, 66:24. It's a chilling scene, lifted as it were right from a Halloween horror film. Isaiah 66:24. This is how the book ends. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. You hear a phrase from Isaiah 1-2 that you see now at the end here? It's repeated verbatim. What's the phrase? They will rebel against me. So Isaiah opens and Isaiah closes. He frames his entire message in the context of rebellion of his children. A rebellion so bad, it's like breaking a father's heart. It's so evil... The rebellion is that the only punishment that you can use to describe it comes in three ghastly images. Unceasing decay as worms feast on an endless supply of corpses. Unending punishment of a fire that never dies out. And the final reaction of abhorrence at the horror of the sight and smell that you see of the decay and the torment. That's what the rebellion deserves. And these are the very images that the Lord Jesus Christ used to describe the punishment of hell itself right here from Isaiah 66. He said, that's what it's like for all those who won't trust me. He said that in Mark 9. So at one level, Isaiah is framing his entire 60-year ministry in the context of rebellion and the appropriate judgment for that rebellion. Because our rebellion 
is not only against the Father's heart, it's against the Father's authority. My children have rebelled against me. May I say this in passing? Fathers in particular, disobedience is not something that you should allow in your home. One of the main commands God gives to fathers and parents is children, obey your parents. If you are not teaching your children to obey, you are failing in that area as a parent. They won't always obey, but they never should get away with disobeying because that's what God's word says. Our job as parents is children, obey your parents. They're not your kids. They're God's kids. And he says, you need to teach them to obey you. Because if they learn to delay in obeying you, and if they can disobey you, if you distract them, but you rarely correct them in ways that get their attention, then they will disobey their heavenly father. You need to give them categories for a God who's above them and punishments that's coming if they disobey the authority that's in their life. Only God will be so loving that he will punish children who disobey him and punish those eternally who refuse to trust him. How do you know? Is is this a bad application? I know it's not why Isaiah's written. It it hit my mind yesterday reading this. It's way over here as an application. but, But read the book of Isaiah and find out that as a father, God views disobedience as rebellion. And children are to obey their parents. I remember telling one of my children something like that when they were much, 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 much younger. They were getting into a habit at the dinner table of saying no to their mom at the dinner table. And after repeated correction over several nights, I gently but firmly took hold of one of my child's forearms and I said, you are to obey your parents and you will not say no to them, especially to your mother. God expects you to obey mom and dad. And if you keep disobeying your parents like this, One day you could end up in hell. Obey your parents. That's not the only way I've interacted with my children when they were young. But beloved, obeying parents is one of the Ten Commandments. And a failure to obey your parents is not cute. It's not a stage. It's not to be permitted in the name of grace. Remember the clear words of the Bible and live. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is, you say it, this is what? Go and learn what it means. And children, one of the clearest evidences at your age that you're a true follower of Christ is that you obey mom and dad. So if you consistently and willfully disobey your parents, you may not be a Christian at all. Because children who've been truly touched and transformed by the redeeming love of God obey their mom and they obey their dad. And it's such an disobedience to a father is such an awful picture that it's the very image God uses to describe the rebellion of his people opening Isaiah. Children have rebelled against me, against my love and against my authority. So the book of Isaiah is set in the context of God's rebellious children, recalcitrant, ungrateful children who rightly deserve the punishment they received. And it's against this backdrop of rebellion that Isaiah begins and ends his book. What a fearsome book it is. An honest book. Now the book divides into two main sections for our purposes here. Chapters 1 to 39 and 40 to 66. In addition to that name, Lord of hosts, 
which appears 50 times. The name Holy One of Israel appears 25 times in this book. God's holiness refers to his unsearchable, incomparable greatness. I am God and there is none other. There's nobody like me, Isaiah 46, 9. Isaiah uses this name for God, Holy One of Israel, about the same number of times in both divisions. Twelve times in chapters 1 to 39 and 13 times in 40 to 66. So this Lord of hosts who rules over all nations and all armies is also the Holy One of Israel, which means God has revealed himself in a special way to you, Judah, to you, Israel. I am the Holy One over you have a special relationship with me. I've given you the Ten Commandments. I've given you my prophets. And yet my children have rebelled against me, the Holy One of Israel. While God reveals himself equally as the Holy One of Israel in both divisions of the book, the Holy One of Israel will act in slightly different ways in part one and part two of Isaiah. In fact, the difference between chapters 1 to 39 and 40 to 66 is so stark that some people think, Somebody else wrote this. Or it was written in a different time. But Isaiah wrote it. The New Testament says he wrote it. Jesus says he wrote it. Isaiah wrote all of this. Well, what's the difference that people, everybody recognizes so stark? At the risk of oversimplifying, here's what you get. In 1 to 39, God is the Holy One of Israel who comes to judge. And in chapters 40 to 66, God is the Holy One of Israel who comes to redeem. That distinction isn't airtight because there are beams of redeeming love that occasionally pierce the dark judgment in 1 to 39 and there are occasional thunderclaps of judgment that rattle the bars of God's redeeming love in in chapters 40 to 66. But the major emphasis remains. In chapters 1 to 39, God is the Holy One of Israel who comes to judge. And in 40 to 66, He's the Holy One of Israel who comes to save His rebellious people as their Redeemer. In fact, that word redeemer shows up 13 times across 66 chapters. And guess which part? 1 to 39 or 46 to 6? Guess which division captures all 13 references of that word redeemer? It's in chapters 40 to 66. And all three of the major names for that Isaiah uses for God appear in 47 verse 4 with these massive words of comfort. Our redeemer... The Lord of hosts is his name. He's the Holy One of Israel. This is a marvelous revelation. It shows us, beloved, that God is not schizophrenic. The Lord of hosts, the one who redeems us, is the Holy One of Israel. The one with the authority to judge is the one with the authority to save us, to redeem us. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. And just how the Holy One of Israel Just how the Lord Almighty is going to save his people from judgment is the breathtaking surprise, the unique contribution of Isaiah that even angels long to look into. First Peter 1.12. So Isaiah's two main divisions bring us into an encounter with the Holy One of Israel who judges his people. Verses 1 to 39. But they bring us into an encounter with the Holy One of Israel who redeems his people. 40 to 66. And that order is important for us to hear now as it was for them. Because what's the order? Here it is. The revelation of our great sin, chapters 1 to 39, comes before the revelation of our great Redeemer, 
verses 40 to 66. The indictment of sin has to come before the pardon for sin. So the very structure of Isaiah's book, how he's arranged this book with its main emphasis in two divisions, gives us the message that we need again and again. And what is that message? We are so sinful, chapters 1 to 39, that we need a Savior, chapters 40 to 66. We're so sinful that we need a Savior. This is the God who saves from judgment. Spurgeon relayed in his autobiography, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. But he who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned with a rope around his neck, is the man who weeps for joy when he's pardoned, who hates the evil which has been forgiven him and lives to honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he's been cleansed. One verse in Isaiah, there are many that capture this flow from judgment to redemption. Isaiah 54, 8. Write it down. Listen to it. Turn to it if you want. We're going to turn to a lot of passages. Isaiah 54, 8. He says, this captures this flow of Isaiah from the Holy One who judges in part one to the Holy One who redeems in part two. Isaiah 54, 8. Listen to this and be overwhelmed at this news. Isaiah 54, 8. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. Isaiah is a first-rate poet. You catch the image? What an awesome, terrifying reality. In overflowing anger, I hid my face from you. That's chapters 1 to 39. But now comes the rest of the verse. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. That's the emphasis of 40 to 66. The Holy One who comes in anger for a moment and who overwhelms us, the one who comes to redeem. Although God's people rightly deserve judgment, He will redeem those who trust in Him. Well, let's look now at Isaiah under two main headings because this is showing us the Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel, who saves His people from judgment through His suffering servant and makes all things new. Let's look at just chapters 1 to 39 now this morning. The Holy One who comes to judge. It breaks into three sections. Can you follow me with that? Three sections. I know I gave two big sections. Now we're just going to focus on section 1. Chapters 1 to 39 break into three sections. The Holy One who brings judgment on His people. Chapters 1 to 12. The Holy One who brings judgment on the nations. 13 to 27. And then a reprisal, the Holy One who brings judgment on His people and the nations and calls them to trust Him. 28 to 39. 1 to 12 on His people, 13 to 27 on the nations, and 28 to 39 who brings judgment on His people and His nations as He calls them to trust Him. So let's look now at chapters 1 to 12 and behold the God who brings judgment on His people. Isaiah, are you familiar with the, with with and and the art world a, a triptych? It's a three-panel piece of art that can fold, and there's one panel. The middle panel's bigger, and there's a third panel where these chapters one to twelve are arranged in a triptych like that. The first panel is chapters one to five. The middle big panel is chapter six, and this third panel is seven to twelve. So it's three panels of artwork with chapter six right in the middle, telling you what's going on on either side. 
Let's look now at this first panel, chapters 1 to 5, in which we're going to see God's judgment on his people. Listen how Isaiah calls God's people to account for forsaking the Lord. Start again in verse 2 with me, please. Isaiah 1, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up. They've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. This is God's word. What Isaiah is doing is pointing out sin in terms of relationship. Children have rebelled against me, verse 2. And I've cared for my people. You can get this image in 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 our pet obsessed world. I've cared for my people like a domesticated animal, giving them food and a safe place to stay. I've trained them. But my people act like they don't even know me, verse 3. The only way to put it actually is what happens within the context of a marriage. They have, verse 4, they've forsaken the Lord and despised the Holy One of Israel. Friends, these very descriptions of Judah's wrongdoing remind us of the personal relational nature of our sin. You're not sinning against the force. You're sinning against a father. You're sinning against a husband. Sin is the arrogant disobedience of a child against the loving parent. It's the disloyalty of a farm animal to its master. And worst of all, it's the betrayal of a spouse. My people have forsaken me. They've despised me. No wonder Isaiah mourns at the beginning of verse 4. These people are laden with iniquity. They're offspring of evil. Now these very descriptions in relational terms were meant to evoke repentance as they face their wrongdoing. But as we'll see in chapter 6, chillingly, the people are too far gone for even anything to bring them to repentance. The relational heat of of Isaiah's words, the warmth of these images, rather than softening their hearts, hardens their hearts. So the chapter ends in verse 18 with people who owe such a God everything, but they give him nothing. They don't even give this God a time of day to listen to his words of pardon. Isaiah 1, 18 to 20. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as wool. Though they are red like crimson, they can become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. The mouth of the Lord has spoken to it, spoken it. When chapter 2 opens, all Judah can look forward to is a terrible day of the Lord, a day of reckoning that previews the invasion of a superpower not yet on the horizon of Babylon. This first panel of judgment continues until it comes to a conclusion in chapter 5. Would you turn to chapter 5? In chapter 5, God likens his people. He changes the image no longer as a father of a spouse, but he views himself as, a, as somebody who's the owner of a vineyard. And God's people are a vineyard into whom he's invested a lot of sweat equity into. He's cleared the land. He's planted the vineyard. He's kept predators from trampling on it. But after all this work, he has no choice but to mow it down back to nothing again. Listen to what happens as God compares his people to this well-cared-for vineyard. Isaiah 5, verse 1. 
Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines, built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I've not done for it? But when I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to this vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will command the clouds that they rain no longer upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness. But behold, an outcry. All the Holy One of Israel can do with Judah at this point, such an unfruitful vine, is to tear it down. And for the rest of chapter 5, if you have your, your Bible open, you can stand down. And now God's going to pronounce a series of six woes, six maledictions, six damnations on his vineyard. And verse 8 Woe to those who are covetous and materialistic. And verse 11, woe to those who live for happy hour and parties. Verse 18, woe to those who rather than, rather than do one sin, drag all their misdeeds in a cart behind them. Woe to those, verse 20, who redefine what God calls sin and they call evil good. Verse 21, woe to those who are too smart for their own good, who are too wise in their own eyes. And verse 22, woe to those who loved to party and use their position not only to acquit the guilty, but they allow the innocent to be accused. Woe, 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 woe. And that's the first panel. And now comes this middle panel of this triptych in chapter 6. And if you know anything about the Bible, chapter 6 is one of the most well-known passages in Isaiah and the entire Bible. And it stands alone between 1 to 5 and 7 to 12. And what Isaiah sees, the people of Judah should have seen. How Isaiah responds is how the people of Judah should have responded. And what the Holy One of Israel did for Isaiah, he wanted to do for his people. But instead of salvation comes judicial blindness. You know Isaiah 6? Here's what Scripture says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. Two he covered his feet. And two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And in light of God's holiness, Isaiah then not only sees his sin, but he sees the entire sin of the nation. And instead of waiting for God to pronounce a woe like he did in chapter 5, Isaiah pronounces a curse on himself. And I said, woe is me. May God's judgment be on me. For I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. How did you know that, Isaiah? Because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. 
But at the moment Isaiah deserves judgment, something else happens in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. The mouth a symbol for all of the internal wickedness because out of the to the heart, the mouth speaks. So in a symbolic gesture, he takes this hot burning coal and says, Behold, this has touched your lips. It's purified your lips and taken your guilt away and your sin is atoned for. Friend, that can be true for you. If you turn from your sin and place all your hope in Christ, whatever you have done can be forgiven this moment. The Lord of hosts forgives his sins. And, but what, what God did for Isaiah, he had longed to do for the nation of Judah. And in verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom will I send and whom will I go? And Isaiah says, Here am I, send me. Maybe Isaiah thinks, I'm going to get to take this nation, this news of forgiveness to the people. Sign me up for that one. I want to go tell people that they're going to be forgiven of their sins. But that's not the message that he gets. Verse 9. It was too late for Judah. Isaiah wasn't going to be a, preach a message of forgiveness, but of hardening. And he said, I want you to go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with and they hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. For people who had so long resisted the overtures of God's grace, they now could not be forgiven, but only judged. The Holy One of Israel had come to judge His people. So Proverbs 29.1 is fulfilled. Whoever hardens his neck repeatedly, even after many reproofs, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Don't say God's not been gracious to Judah. If He didn't judge them, we'd say He's not just anymore. They waited too long. Don't you wait too long. With the final panel of judgment opens chapters 1 to 5. Here's judgment coming. Chapter 6, the holy God forgives a repentant Isaiah, but his nation is going to be, you're getting ready to be judged for your recalcitrant rebellion as a disobedient child. And now here comes this final panel in chapters 7 to 12, and it opens with a king of Judah named Ahaz who's fearing for his life. The poetry breaks for a narrative moment. The northern kingdom of Israel had allied with Syria and they're miles away from sacking Jerusalem. This isn't simply a threat of failing a test, you know, or your girlfriend breaking up with you. This is the threat of death, not only for yourself, but your family members and everybody under your care. It's a frightening scenario, a tremendous weight to carry as a leader. The people under me might die. My family might die. No wonder that chapter 7 verse 2 tells us the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the question of the hour becomes this, whom now will Ahaz trust? You need to know this about Ahaz. Ahaz is not a good king. You could read this passage and think, man, great day. That was kind of harsh. Ahaz is not a good king. The record in Second Chronicles 28 tells you that Ahaz made idols. He sacrificed his sons in the fire and engaged in detestable practices. King Ahaz was not a king. 
who worshipped God nor deserved mercy. And yet in mercy, because God was faithful to his promises to the house of David, over which King Ahaz now ruled, God sent Isaiah to calm Ahaz's heart and to encourage him to trust the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 4. Say to Ahaz, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not your heart be faint, because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria. Isaiah is telling Ahaz that the Syrian kingdom, though they look mighty, is nothing more than a log at a campfire that's been burning all night, and you can spit on it and, pss, and it'll go out. They're nothing anymore. And then announcing a judgment that will come, Isaiah implores Ahaz to trust God. Look at verse 9. One translation puts it like this. If your faith does not remain firm, then you will not remain secure. So flip that around. What's he saying is, if your faith remains firm, you will remain secure. You see, this is the heart of all Israel's problems and their relationship with God in their entire history. It's the fundamental question. Who will you trust? Will you trust me? If Will you trust God and His Word? Or if your faith remains firm, you will remain secure. But if not, you won't remain secure. So who will Ahaz trust? God even encourages Ahaz to ask for a sign. Ask for any sign of confirmation you want, chapter 7, verse 11. Make it as difficult as you want. Make the sign as high as heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. But Ahaz refuses. He not only refuses, he disobeys the word of the Lord. Did you notice this? The Holy One of Israel just commanded Ahaz to ask for a sign. But according to verse 12, Ahaz hears a command from the Lord of hosts and says, No! This is not humility. It's bald arrogance. The king of Jerusalem gave you a command to ask and you said, No! And then you clothed your rebellion in pious language. You see, just as Isaiah in chapter 6 showed the nation what they should have done in the lives of God's holiness but didn't, Ahaz standing in for the nation is showing you exactly what the nation did. They refused to trust the Lord. And the Lord is gracious, not to Ahaz, but immediately he promises a sign that's as high as the heaven and as deep as the dead. And it's sung every year for Handel's Messiah and let it be sung. The Lord will give you a sign. But the you here is not singular. The Lord will give you, you plural. That means everybody coming after you, Ahaz, even to us. And what's the sign? It's astounding. Look at verse 14. Let me translate it a bit differently. Behold, you better look at this. The virgin, not a virgin, the virgin is pregnant. What? Say that again. The virgin is pregnant? That doesn't happen. I told you to ask for a sign as high as the heaven and deep as Sheol. Behold, the virgin is pregnant and is about to give birth to a son. And this son will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Some signs in the Bible are present persuaders. Other signs happen in the future and confirm what happened. That's what this sign is now. Ahaz doesn't get a, get a sign. It's not for him anymore. It's an astounding sign that the Holy One of Israel has come to judge his people, but he's going to save them in miraculous supernatural ways. Now, you know, that's not the first time this kind of thing happens. Chapter 7 and chapter 9, you get another promise that this little baby boy, born of a virgin, who's called God with us, is a son who's going to be given, and this son will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There is this kind of divine deliverer who's coming. 
And on either side of chapter 7 and 9, you have this promise in chapter 4 that there's going to become this tiny branch that's beautiful and glorious. And then in chapter 11, Isaiah speaks again of a branch. The nations of Assyria and Babylon will come and they're going to mow David's kingdom down until nothing is left but an itty-bitty little stump. That's all that's left of the kingdom. You ever chop down a shrub or a little tree? I mean, a little tree enough? I don't know if it happens to all trees. It happens to all trees that I do because they seem to want to come back when I want to get rid of them. But you chop down this little shrub and there's this little stump left. And what happens often a few months later? A shoot shoots out from this tree that you thought you hurled down to the ground. Well, listen to chapter 11, verse 1. Out of the stump of Jesse's family will grow a shoot. Holy mackerel. A new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and might and counsel. And he will know the fear of the Lord and might in obeying me. In the middle of this word of judgment, God is promising, but I'm going to send a tiny little branch right now, a little baby boy. And we know who that is. In Revelation 22, 6, 16, the risen Christ calls himself, I am the root and offspring of David. And when the Virgin Mary gives birth to Christ, Matthew says, here's what you need to know. All this took place. Here's the confirmation of that sign to took place. What the prophet said, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So even while part one of Isaiah is showing us God bringing his judgment, remember there are these glimmering aspects of spectacular hope. The good news of the gospel is shining even in the midst of human depravity. Well, now we move to the Holy One who brings judgment on the nations, verses 13 to 27. 13 to 27, God is moving from judgment on his people to judgment on the nations. And if you scan these chapters, you would notice judgment oracles pronounced on ten different nations. He starts with rising superpowers to the north, Babylon and Assyria who will come. Then he moves down to nations closest to Jerusalem, Philistia and Moab and Damascus. And then he goes down to the south beyond Israel to the nations of Egypt. Then he goes back up along the coast, the nations of the north. And what's the point? Of these oracles of judgment over 13 to 27 chapters. What's he doing? Well, one point is to underline this. I think there's none righteous, not even one. It's true that God will redeem people out of every tribe and tongue and nation. But it's also true that the Lord of hosts will judge people out of every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation. In other words, the whole world needs a redeemer. Now think about that for a moment. Let that fall on you. The nations then and now lie under the righteous wrath of the Lord of hosts. And when Paul wants to summage a church like ours to think about missions, he quotes from this section in Isaiah. And Romans 15, 9, Paul says, you know, one day the Gentiles, people like you and me, they're going to glorify God for his mercy. And one reason they will is because God promised it would happen a long time ago. Well, prove it to me, Paul. How about you come with me to the book of Isaiah? And I'll tell you it's been promised for a long time. Because in Isaiah 11:10, here we read this promise. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arrived the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles will hope. But how will they come to hope in Jesus, the root of Jesse? Well, Paul answered that back in Romans 10. How are they to believe in someone whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? 
As it's written, Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The nations of the world need the Redeemer promised by Isaiah. And Isaiah's point is, God needs you to tell them. What I mean is the means through which he accomplishes the salvation of the ends of the earth is us going to the ends of the earth. So why are you here? God's got promises to keep. What are you doing with your life? The root of Jesse has been raised from the dead so that Gentiles will trust in him, but they won't trust him unless they hear his name. And how will they hear his name unless you go? That's the promise of Isaiah. And when Isaiah sees, he says, how beautiful are those feet that go up into the mountains and proclaim the gospel of peace. The second reason for the oracles of these judgment is so Judah will stop trusting the nations. John, the New Testament apostle, puts it like this. Don't love the world or the things that are in the world. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of the life, it's not from the Father. And all those desires are passing away. Israel's entire history, the reason they wanted a king came down to this. We want to be like other nations. They worship the God of the Philistines and crave the power of Assyria and Babylon. So they make alliances with them. But part of Isaiah's message, uh, these chapters right here, the sheer folly of putting your hope in people, things outside of God. They call us to trust the Lord and warn us if we don't. And then there's another series of woes that comes on the nation. And then we come to the last part, the longest part here. We come from chapters 28 to the end of part one. Don't trust in nations. Don't trust in Egypt. Trust in the Lord. Now, let me give you an example of it. Just as this part one opened with with King Ahaz, who faced a call to trust the Lord. Now, Isaiah ends part one with another king who faces the same decision. Turn to chapter 36. This time it's Hezekiah and Sennacherib of Assyria was making mincemeat of all the nations who were heading his way. Next in his sight in Jerusalem, in chapter 36 opens, Hezekiah is out checking his water supply in preparation for a long siege warfare. And if you've been to Israel, you've probably explored Hezekiah's tunnel or had the opportunity to do so. As long as Hezekiah can keep water coming in in a secret tunnel under it, they might be able to outlast an Acherb in some way. But now the point before Ahaz is the point before Hezekiah and this crisis. Who will Hezekiah trust? Those words, trust, who will you trust, are the very words that are used on Hezekiah at this point. Sennacherib sends his chief of staff, Rabshakeh, and listen to how he confronts this rattled Hezekiah in Isaiah 36, 4-7. Listen to how many times he uses the word trust. And Rabshakeh said to them, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? Behold, you're trusting in Egypt. Verse 7. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. Is he not the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? Saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. But Rabshakeh is not done forcing Hezekiah to think about who will he trust. And verse 13, he starts to address all the citizens in their own language. He stood, verse 13, and called out in a loud voice, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, 
The Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given to the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. Now Hezekiah has a choice. He can give in to the demands and stay in their land and become their servants, or he can trust the Lord. Now, of course, it sounds like an easy decision for us sitting here this morning. But now, wait a minute. Where are we not tempted? Where are we tempted not to trust the Lord? Where are we tempted not to follow his word? Where are you being tempted? Where does culture mock us for not trusting his word? Will you trust the Lord or will you walk away? What if your life, what if your family were on the line? What if your job were on the line? Would you trust the Lord and his word? It's so easy to sit here and tell Ahaz, trust God. Hezekiah, trust God until you're the one in the crucible. But in reading the story, we enter into the crucible. And all of Israel's problems comes down to our problems. Will you trust God? Will you trust God in his word? Now think about it. The very first temptation given to Adam and Eve was that very thing. Has God said, should you trust God? It was the promise. It was the temptation that Abraham and Sarah faced. God promised to give them a promised son or they could wait on the Lord or they could look for a concubine and take matters into their own hands. God promised in Deuteronomy, a king to Israel, they could wait on him, could take matters in their own hands. And they got Saul. And what about Saul? Saul had a chance. He could trust the word of the Lord through Samuel or grow impatient and take matters into his own hands. Do you see the great problem of Israel that Isaiah preaches about comes down to this. You have not trusted me. Will you trust my word? Will you trust me? Who will be king? Who will you trust? And what does Hezekiah do? In chapter 37, verse 1, as soon as Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself and went into the house of the Lord. And Isaiah comforts Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid. And then in verses 15 to 18, Hezekiah prays. And all the themes in his prayer show up and all of Isaiah. You're the Lord of hosts. You're enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God, you alone, of all the kings of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria, they have laid waste all the nations in their lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire. But they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they have been destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kings of the earth may know that you alone are Lord. The Holy One who brings salvation, who brings judgment, is the one who brings salvation to all who trust in Him. Because look how the chapter ends in verse 36. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp and the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishroch, his god, Adramelech and Shirazizer, his sons, struck him down with a sword. Just as God told Ahaz in chapter 7, Assyria would be destroyed. They would join the dust of all the empires who've come before. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but the Holy One of Israel remains king forevermore. And friends, this is the choice we all face as part one comes to an end. Who will you trust? Will you trust the Lord's word or will you be judged by him 
forever. Because until you fix that trust issue, everything else in the pyramid of your life will keep tumbling down. If not now, it will tumble down then in the place where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Come now. Let's consider your options, says the Lord. Though your sins have stained you like the color red, you can become white like snow. Though your sins are easy to spot as the color scarlet, you can become like wool if you are willing. Who do you trust?